Thank you, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Avery, for leading us in worship. And what a wonderful, wonderful ministry they carried out this morning, right? Thank you so much. Welcome to all of you and to those that are joining with us online. We're so grateful for this opportunity for us to uh, gather together here this morning. And grateful for each one of you that have come. Now, you know, this time of year really uh, in the life of the church is like New Year's, isn't it? Uh, used to be around Labor Day, but that started getting moved back a while, a while ago. And now, I don't know, maybe eventually it'll be June. I'm not sure. <laughs> right now, about the 1st of August is sort of like New Year. And uh, I hope that you will uh, call attention to the things that are coming up in the church as was mentioned on the video, Leanne, the bulletin, the e-news, the website, lots of things that we want you to be aware of, especially at this time, this season. Also, if you've not downloaded the West Park app, I hope that you will do that. Uh, it is phenomenal. Very, very grateful for uh, the work that went together and putting that together. And you need it. It is, it is a one-stop shop for information. But also, uh, one to let you know, you're aware of the new uh, West Park podcast. Uh, this is something just started recently, and title of that podcast is Impact the World. Impact the World, connected to our, our mission and vision here to love God, love people, and impact the world. And I'm really thankful for uh, this uh, ministry, the podcast, what it is, is West Park uh, pastors, ministry leaders, uh, on a regular basis, generally about once a week, will be sharing conversations about uh, items related to ministry. Conversation is led by Tara Hayes, who's on our communication team. She does a wonderful job, and uh, hope that you'll go out and regularly listen to that. Now, you can find that. A podcast by going out to a Spotify app and just text in there West Park Baptist. You'll get to that. But also, if you just want to go to the website, down to the bottom, scroll to the bottom, and then it says podcast, and you can regularly uh, connect with that. Hope that you'll make that a part of the regular rhythm of your life. It is, I think, going to be very helpful for us as a church family uh, to carry out what want us to talk about for these few weeks together. Uh, also, uh, as mentioned out in the foyer, uh, some wonderful West Park merch. That's a new word I learned, merch, okay? I, I just sat through several ministry team meetings acting like I knew what that meant. <laughs> uh, merchandise, and so it's available out there. Uh, also, I might just add some extremely helpful books as well are available out there. Just put that in as well. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in the passage that uh, Don read to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, you might want to be reading in that chapter for the next few uh, weeks. I encourage you to spend time there because that's where we're going to be spending our time on these Sunday mornings in August as we're having uh, this month of a combined services together, combining our services here in the auditorium. That one's over 
uh, in the hub combining for uh, these four weeks and then also including Labor Day weekend. Now I want to say right up front I have no startling revelation to make to you. I have no amped up motivation, okay? Uh, that's not going to happen. The uh, goal I have, and what I've just said, the beginning of this new ministry year, and in many ways a new and fresh season for us as a church family, my goal is to do, if I can, what Peter challenged the believers about in that first century. He said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to stir up your hearts by way of reminder. And I really believe that to remember is the greatest motivation. The greatest motivation is to remember, to know and remember as believers who we are. That's a powerful thing when you wrap your mind around it. And I also believe that the greatest obstruction that can happen to a church is to forget who we are. You see, we don't know what we should do until we know who we are. And thank God knowing who we are is all wrapped up in whose we are, right? Belong to the Lord. Now, recently, in preparation for this series, I read an article. It was actually a scholarly article. I did not understand a lot of it, being that it was a scholarly article. But the article had to do with amnesia. I was intrigued by this idea of forgetting your identity. And it talked about causes and impact of that. And, but what I did find interesting in this article that I was looking at online was that the article included several film clips from the Jason Bourne series. I like that part of the scholarly article, I want you to know. Now, are you familiar with that series, the Bourne series? The books are written by uh, Robert Ludlum 40 or so years ago. And the movie's all about the Bourne series. You know, there's the Bourne identity, the Bourne supremacy, the Bourne ultimatum, uh, the Bourne legacy, Bourne to lose. No, no, I don't think that's part of it, okay? That's, that's a little Ray Charles thing popped in there, okay? Jason Bourne is the final film. And I, I have enjoyed these. They're, they're action-packed. They're thrillers. Lots of chase scenes, amazing things. You know, kind and gracious and loving things of blowing up and all that. <laughs> so I've enjoyed the action, the thrills, uh, the intrigue in this series. Uh, Susan enjoyed it too. Susan primarily is enjoyed it because two words, Matt Damon, all right, <laughs> Matt Damon, yeah, now she just kind of scrolls through, Matt Damon, okay, I'm just saying, all right, now in this series, uh, Jason Bourne is, is someone who has been recruited 
and actually brainwashed, specially trained to become an agent for secret CIA operative. It's really a rogue operative known as Treadwater. And his one job is really, as this agent, is to uh, take out adversaries or assumed adversaries that are identified by the leadership of Treadwater. But then one day something totally unplanned happens. Jason Bourne starts to remember. Not a lot. But just little flashes, little brief images of his past. And now that he's starting to remember who he is, suddenly he has become a threat become a threat to the goals of Treadwater. And so they're determined that he must be taken out. That's sort of the basis of this whole series. But as I was listening to the clip about this series, here's what the announcer said over the series that gripped my attention. He said this, speaking about Jason Bourne, The only way he can survive is to find out who he is. The only way he can survive is to find out who he is. I want us to think about that. Of course, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, the Assembly of the Lord is always going to survive. He said the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. But there's all the difference in the world between surviving and thriving as the assembly of the Lord. The only way a church can thrive is by finding out, maybe remembering who the church really is, who we really are in Jesus. And so I want us for a few weeks to kind of think about our born identity. (laughs) Because we were born into this identity. We were given this identity. It is our true identity, whether we're having a crisis or amnesia or not. Our true identity is a born identity when we were born into the family of God. And so for these four weeks in Ephesians 4, I want us to remember who we are and maybe also discover again for the very first time, maybe like cornflakes, discover again who we really are, who we can be. Now it's not complicated It is God's will, but we must cooperate. And this is all wrapped around four qualities that we're going to focus on this month. And you see them highlighted here on the screen and on the wall. And that is these ordinary, extraordinary, radical qualities of unity, purpose, freedom, and love. That's what... The Apostle Paul, 
That's what God, through the Apostle Paul, says to his followers about being the church. He calls them to a life of unity, purpose, freedom, and love. We're going to look at that this month. Now, this morning, let's again just look at these six verses quickly uh, that Don read for us. Listen to what the Lord has to say about one of those qualities, unity. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And all the God's people said, Amen. Amen power in just reading the word of God isn't it so questions what does it mean to be the church and here specifically is a question I want us to ask and focus on what does it mean to be the church in a culture that desires simultaneously to lose the church in its impact and to use the church for the culture's own political, social programs. What does it mean to be the church in a culture that desires simultaneously to just lose the church from any impact and at the same time to use the church? for political and social power. In the mid-1930s, the German government under Adolf Hitler made an entire pointed, deliberate assault, though it wasn't seen for that, on the church with a goal that in Germany, at that time in the 30s, the church would lose its impact on the people. And by sweetening up the leadership of the church, speaking to the arrogance of leaders of the church, the government under Hitler could find out how to use the church for sinister purposes and the government of Germany under Hitler was very effective of doing that there was a young pastor theologian from a famous family in Germany his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Bonhoeffer began to think deeply about the church. He, he was grieved by what he saw happening 
And he, he began to think deeply about it and pray deeply about it and to search the scriptures about what the church really is, the nature of the church. The church of the New Testament, not the church that he was experiencing and was common in his culture. But what did it mean to be the New Testament church? And eventually, this truth of what the church is in Christ gripped Dietrich Bonhoeffer's heart and he began to preach and teach about the church. He began to mentor, especially young leaders, about what it meant to be in the church. And he started actually a seminary that was illegal and it was underground to train people to be actively involved in leaders in the church. In 1939, he published this concept, this this application in a book that he called Life Together. Life Together. Incredible book. Available. It's a classic. It's never gone out of print. But what Bonhoeffer tried to clarify in that is the heart of Jesus' plan for the church. Stripping away all the cultural additions. Stripping away all the traditions Stripping away all that's been covering over the church. What is the plan that Jesus has for his people, the church? And he found that the church was wrapped up in the idea of community. Life together. A worshiping, witnessing, working together in ministry community, a shared life. That's what community means. It comes from koinonia in the Greek language. A shared life, shared life together that expresses simultaneously, listen carefully, a, your personal faith in Christ, but also expresses at the same time your relational faith in Christ by your relationship with others. Personal faith and a relational faith, life together. And the first quality of that life together, Paul says, is it is a life together in unity. In unity. Now, in our scripture today, it's very clear, isn't it? Paul takes unity seriously. Very seriously. I want you to listen again to verse 1 and listen to Paul's exhortation for unity among the believers. Verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He's in prison in Rome, we believe. I am urging you, imploring you, beseeching you, is the King James, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now notice Paul is clearly serious about the unity and the priority of the church. Uh, the church is not just an add-on in Paul's thinking. It's not just an, a, a something that's an addendum to life in his understanding, which is guided by the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to say here, and what he's sharing with us is timeless. The question is, how can the 
culture take the church seriously if the members of the church don't take it seriously? How do we expect the culture to take us seriously if we don't take ourselves as a body of believers and our, as the people of God in Christ together if we don't take that seriously? It's serious enough that we all need to participate if we're Christian. You know, some time ago, I was reading a study by the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination in the United States. 50,000 churches. 15 million members. But they conducted a study of their denomination and they found out something interesting. Of their 15 million members, 27% were inactive. That meant they never attended. Not Easter, not Christmas. 27% never attended. And 26% they could not locate. They have no record of where they are. Can't get a hold of them. So what that meant in the Southern Baptist study of their own membership, 53% or almost 8 million of the 15 million did not participate in church at all. Now, quickly, listen to me. That is not a criticism of the Southern Baptist Convention. I could not do that. Have great admiration, relationship, we do with Southern Baptist churches, though we're not technically Southern Baptists ourselves. But I mention this because it is characteristic, not just of their particular denomination, it's characteristic of evangelicalism. Friend, that is not life together. And that cannot ever be our life together at West Park. We must be a people who treasure our membership. Treasure that it's not just a name attached to a membership role. But it is a life together in Christ. This is our calling. Paul calls the believers to remember who you are. Remember who you are. And notice he uses three key words to say this is how I want you to show that you remember who you are. He says... I want you to walk, that's the first word, worthy, that's the second word, of your calling, the third word. Walk, worthy, of your calling. Now the key word there is worthy. That, that word is the word axios. Axios, we get our phrase, our term axiom from that. It's a self-evident truth, an axiom. But the word meant weight originally. And then it came to have the idea of equal weight, like weights in a balance. Worthy meant these are equal. So this is what Paul is saying. You need to conduct yourselves in your walk in a way that is equal to your calling. <laughs> Your walk, your conduct should be in accordance with your calling. Now, 
what is that calling? Well, that's chapters 1 through 3. He's talking about the calling of the church and the members into that church. But then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul talks about the conduct that should be happening individually and collectively from people who have been called. They are the called. Now, what is Paul telling us about our calling? He says, therefore, that's a key word. It changes the whole direction of this letter. Therefore, because of this calling, this is the way that you should walk. That is rightly connected with your calling. Now, what is this calling? Well, you look back in Ephesians, it's a personal calling. We are personally called to faith in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we're saved. We were far off. We were without God, without hope. We were strangers to all the promises of God. But God, right? In his great mercy, wherewith he loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. And we have been saved by this grace through faith. And it's not of our own. It is totally a free gift of God. That's our calling. <laughs> and we have been called to be his workmanship for good works in Christ Jesus. So this calling here is a calling that's personal, but it's a calling that's relational. As he talks about this personal calling, listen carefully, it is not a solitary calling. Friends, you have a personal salvation. You must be born again. And it must be personal. It cannot be done by family. It cannot be done in marriage. It cannot be done by legacy. It has to be a personal new birth experience by God in Christ. But once you have been born again, you have been called to salvation. That personal calling is a relational calling. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You'll never find it in the New Testament. There's no such thing as a saint, singular, mentioned in the New Testament. Look it up. Every time it's the word saints, plural. We are in a kingdom. We are in a family. We are in a body. A body. The body of Christ. We're related to each other. And so this exhortation to be walk worthy of the calling is to walk in a way that preserves and protects that calling. It's about unity. Now, how is that unity expressed? We're to walk this way. How do we walk this out so that we are part of facilitating unity? We're not obstructing unity. Well, Paul says this is how it's done. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, let's stop here for a moment. Those qualities are radical. Those qualities, look at those words, they are 
counter-cultural. You want to be counter-cultural? Be that. It's not popular with the world. What's not popular with the world? This is not popular with the world. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. It's not popular with the world, but let me tell you, it is a powerful witness to the world. And friends, you cannot witness to the world and be like the world. What do we have to offer the world if we're just like them? What witness is that? The qualities that foster unity are humility and gentleness. Let's look at these words. Humility and and gentleness. That word humility is actually two words put together. (laughs) I was going to try to pronounce it for you today, but it's four syllables in Greek, and I didn't trust myself, okay? I was not humble about it, okay? But the two words mean this, think lowly. To think lowly. To not think highly of yourself, but to think lowly. That's what humility means, the word. And gentleness... Now, this word gentleness is protetas, and it is hard to translate into English, but maybe the word meek is closest. Meek, gentleness is meekness. And meekness does not mean what another word that sounds like meekness means. What's that word? Weakness. It doesn't mean that. Here's what meekness means literally it's the idea of strength under control. Strength under control. It was actually used to break a horse to the bridle. The horse is just as strong as he ever was, but now he's useful. He's gentle. He's meek. Now, these were not considered virtues in the Greek and Roman world. You need to understand something. These were not only not considered to be virtues, they were considered to be vices. Aristotle, one of the great philosophers of ancient world, said this, the greatest virtue is one in which a person refuses to tolerate any insult and is always ready to strike back. That's what Aristotle said. The word here is is megasukos. Big soul. Big attitude. 2,500 years, the culture has not changed, my friends. It's not changed. As Jake shared a couple weeks ago, The philosophy is expressed by some of our national leaders. You got to hit them back if they hit you. You got to hit them five times harder. Then we write songs about that, permeate our brain with that, teach that to our kids and our example. That's not quite what Jesus considered his leadership model.
In fact, Jesus described himself. You know what? The only time Jesus ever described his nature, he used these two words. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and lowly. And he used these two terms. Gentle and lowly. I wonder, let's stop, pause for a minute, Selah moment. Would people describe you that way? Gentle and lowly. Would they describe me that way? People who really know us. It's with patience. Gentle and lowly. We keep this unity with patience. The word patience here, makrothumios, means long-tempered. Long-tempered. Some people say, well, you know, I, I just have a short fuse. You know, I, 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 I just kind of blow up quickly. It's all over quickly. Yeah, the same can be said of dynamite. That short fuse blows up unity. How long does it take to build unity? Trust. How long does it take to destroy it? Long-tempered. This word is used to describe, to describe the Lord. The Lord is long-tempered to all. Aren't you thankful for that? Wouldn't it be bad if God had a short fuse? And then we preserve this unity, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Loving forbearance. And the real issue here is love. It's out of love that we forbear with one another. We put up with one another. But it's not just put up and endure like, ooh, ooh. You know, if it wasn't Sunday. <laughs> Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Peter said, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers what? Multitude of sins. If we start to mark transgressions, we're all marked people. Because we've all failed each other. Now let's stop here. I want to tell you, here's what someone is thinking. Maybe many of you thinking. Yeah, boy, I wish I just had that kind of passive personality. I wish I just kind of had that, that, that nature that's kind of passive. Absolutely not. These qualities are not passive they are active they are focused we are engaged and determined for them to be a part of our life look at verse 3 Paul says that you're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace eager here spudazzo means zeal you have a zealousness that you're not just saying well you know I'm a long-tempered person no I'm not you know oh I'm he's meek I'm not she is gentle I'm not no 
you see these as qualities of the Lord that he wants developed. And you, you don't say, I just got a different personality. No, you maintain a zeal to work at these things. A zeal to what? Preserve the unity. Preserve the unity. Notice verse 3. The unity of the... What's the next word? Spirit. We are not creators of unity. The Lord never called His people to create their unity. He has called us not to create the unity. He created it. By His Spirit, uniting us all, He wants us to be custodians of the community. We're to protect it. We're to guard it. We are to be peacekeepers. Peacekeepers. Now stop for a moment. So I'm asking you, so far... As Paul is talking to the church in Rome, in Ephesus, from Rome, the Roman Empire. Do a little survey of what everyday life was like in the Roman Empire. The culture of the Roman Empire. What is Paul saying is the real danger to the church? Is the danger to the church... Nero is the danger to the church. The terrible things in the empire. No, the danger of the church. Listen, the danger to the church is never external to the church. The danger to the church is internal. It's internal. That's the real danger. We are totally misled when we think the danger is out there that's not the danger to the church Jesus said so I will build my church and the very power of hell will not stop it the real danger to the church what is it is it losing an election is a real danger to the church losing some rights is a real danger to the church losing our freedoms Absolutely not. The danger to the church is losing our unity. Losing our unity. It is the enemy who comes to divide, to destroy. Why? If we lose our unity, we lose our witness. Our great witness is not by being loud about how our desires are not being carried out, what we're losing. That's not the witness of the church. I understand a person's concern about those things. Of course we are. But that's not the danger to the church. The danger of the church is losing our unity because that will cause us to lose our witness. What did Jesus say? By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples. Why? How? If you have what? Love one for another. Love is a universal language. Love, people know when they see it. 
they know it when they feel it. And when out there in that world, they're hurting and they're tired of the noise and they're tired of the cancel culture and they're tired of the shouting and they want a place where they can have healing, they're going to find some people who have a healing quality about them. People who have a welcoming, united witness. There's something different about those folks. Anybody can march. Anybody can post. But to live in unity, what's going on here? Unity for the church, unity for our church is essential. Now, what is the essence of the unity? And I want you to know in this series, there are four qualities I want to talk about, but I'm just going to talk about them. We're going to move through them. But it's going to be like a little train. I can put the caboose on wherever I need, okay? So, here's a few things I want us to see this morning as we come to our time of communion in just a few minutes. The unity of the church is a creation and a demonstration of God himself. It's creation and a demonstration of God himself. The unity of the church. And Paul shares in verses 4 through 6 what that creation and demonstration of God is. The unity is the creation of God himself. Notice Paul in verses 4 to 6 names three persons. Did you see this? Verse 4, Spirit. Verse 5, Lord. That's Jesus. Verse 6, Father. Guess what? The Trinity is involved in our unity. What does the word Trinity mean? Tri-unity. God Almighty is a community of three persons, one nature, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When God said, let us make man in our image, let us make man in our image, and he made us to be image bearers, in that was an innate desire for us to know community. That's the reason the first thing that God said is not good. He said, that's good, that's good, that's good. What's the first thing he said is not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. Literally, the Hebrew, this aloneness is not good. God has created us for community. And where does he want us to find that community? More than any place else, the church. That's what the church is it's a demonstration of God's creation it's a demonstration of his power notice seven times a word is used in verses four to six do you see it seven times what's the word one one Sevenfold unity, that number seven is completeness, completeness, divine completeness. The body is a demonstration of the unity of God Himself. One body, one spirit, one hope. 
One, we're told, in our Lord, in faith, in baptism, in God the Father. One body. The church is Christ's body. Chapter 1, verse 21. The church is His body. It's called a temple. It's called a family. It's called a kingdom. Here Paul says it's a body. Not one building. Not one gathering. Not one location. It is one body in Christ. There's one spirit. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Every believer possesses the spirit of God. Paul said in Romans 8, if you do not have the spirit of God, you're not his. Every believer is born by the spirit. Every believer has been baptized into the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. We've all been made to drink of this one and same spirit. We share one spirit. We belong to one body. We cherish one hope. We cherish one hope. What is that hope? It's the hope of Christ's return. It's the assurance. It's not wishing. We know it's, it's certain. <laughs> it is the confidence of Christ's return and our resurrection to be with him and to be like him. This is the hope. Paul said to Titus that we are waiting for that blessed hope. It is the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you like to sing these songs as we did this morning that emphasize that truth, that Christ is coming. That unity is in we cherish this hope. We submit to one Lord One Lord, Jesus Christ, not many, one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the confession of faith, the bottom line, confession of faith of the early church. Christos es Kyrios. Why were the Christians martyred? You know why they are martyred? Because they were considered atheists. How in the world were Christians considered atheists? They would not accept the gods of Rome and they would not say that Caesar is Lord. Why? Because there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, who makes us united. One hope, one Lord, one faith that unites us. One faith, one body of truth that unites us. It's not our personal experience. That, those aren't the same. But there's one body of truth. There's one objective message. The message of the gospel. That unites us all. We're not divided by labels. We're not divided by names that might be on a sign. We are united when we truly Hold to the faith that's been what? Once and for all delivered to the saints. I think right now it's time for the caboose. (laughs) 
We're going to continue to talk about this unity. But let me tell you what we're going to focus on as we go forward. It's unity that embraces diversity. Listen carefully, church. Don't pack up just yet. Don't try to beat the Methodist to the restaurant. I know. Second shift all the time. Unity is not uniformity. Unity embraces our differences, but celebrates the greater unity that brings us together. The unity in Christ. What we're about to do shows that we embrace that. We're going to take communion. The team's going to come back. But now I want to say this to you. Communion has significant because has true significance, not just because you take it, you should not take it lightly, but because it symbolizes two unions. Communion. Your union with Christ that you know He is your Lord and Savior. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Our men are coming. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. If you don't have a cup, they'll give that to you. Container. But this communion is not just vertical. It's also horizontal with others. And so as we take this today, we are taking it honestly and do not take it dishonestly. We are only taking it honestly if we can say, to the best of my ability, there is nothing between me and any other believer. There's nothing between me and someone else that's not settled. That person may not be reconciled to me. I've, I've attempted, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm not divided. I'm united. You see, you can't take communion and be focused on politics. You can't take communion and let your mind be thinking about all the threads on social media. You can't take communion if your focus is not going to be on the 99% that makes you one with someone else, but you have, are transfixed on that 1%. Don't take it. If you have something in your heart against somebody else that you have not said, I forgive to God, you've not released them, then for the sake of God, don't take communion. Because it represents community. This cup is a reminder of our salvation. 